Well, as the kids exit, let me welcome you all and just give you a uh, Merry Christmas. My name is Kenan Vaughn, and I've got the privilege of being pastor here at Harvest Church. I'm so excited that you have joined us tonight, uh, many of you together as family, as I see, and what a glorious time it is to be together worshiping the Lord and praising God for the incarnation, God in the flesh. I'm going to read for us here the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. It's a story that you may be very familiar with, but I'm going to read it uh, verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to kind of read it in full here. I'm not going to, I'm going to read it and then stop and, and give some thoughts versus give them as I go, as I usually do, because I want you to hear the whole story tonight. So here is the story of Christmas, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of those who have gathered in this place, that we be reminded of a, um, of a silent night. So many years ago, when the reality of these events took place, the reality of God becoming flesh, not just appearing, but being with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, I pray that as our thoughts are... Um, turn towards this story, our, our minds and our hearts would follow, that we would be captivated by your love demonstrated in your taking on flesh, living a life we could have never lived and dying in our place and for our sin. God, I pray that we'd be captivated by the gospel tonight. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you some um, context here just of the story and um, the idea first that that this uh, census was taken, that Caesar Augustus, a world emperor, would call for a census. Now, now, now Caesar Augustus, and he had his man-made reasons for calling a census. Uh, most historians think it was for taxation purposes. He wanted an accurate count so he could get, uh, maximize the taxation of the people. But little did he know he was fulfilling God's purposes as well, that all emperors are pawns in the hands of a sovereign and mighty God. And God had prophesied in his word through his prophet Micah that indeed a child would be born who would be the Savior, the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And when that child, that Messiah, that anointed one came, he would come in Bethlehem. And so if we were to back up, we would have seen in chapter 1 that the angel Gabriel actually appeared to Mary and said, you are with that child. Now this was surprising to Mary because she was a virgin. So just as any of you ladies might feel, if you were uh, told by an angel, just being told anything by an angel is surprising enough, but the fact that you are pregnant, having never been with a man, her reaction was very similar to what yours would be. She said, how is that possible? 
She said, I'm, I'm a virgin. That, that can't be. And Gabriel said, the Lord has favored you, and he will overshadow you. You'll be overshadowed by a mighty God, and he will put a baby inside of you. And this baby is going to be the Savior. So we have these two, kind of two narratives going on. First, there's the impossibility of God supernaturally placing a child in the womb of a virgin. And then we have Joseph and Mary who are over here in Nazareth, and yet the prophecy says that the child will be born in Bethlehem. So what will God do? Well, lo and behold, Caesar Augustus calls for a census to be taken, and everyone must go back to their hometown. Well, Joseph is of the line of David. David's hometown is Bethlehem. So here go Joseph and Mary nine months later. Just at the time when it's come for her to deliver, he has got to hoist her up on his donkey, and they make this 90-mile trek to Bethlehem. Little did Caesar Augustus know that he was fulfilling the word of the Lord given through the prophet Micah. And so here come Joseph and Mary, Mary betrothed to Joseph, nine months pregnant, and they arrive in Bethlehem, and they go to an inn, and uh, the inn is full, and it's not like they could do what we would do and just take out our phone and look at our hotel near me app and find a, uh, another hotel that has a room. They didn't have any of that technology, but furthermore, Bethlehem is a small town. There were no other hotels. This is a one-inn town, and that inn is full. And so they do the only thing they can. They go out into the stable where the animals are, and and uh, because it is time, the time has come, the text says, they bed down right there next to the animals, and, and Joseph probably scrounges together, puts a little hay in the feeding trough, and it's the manger, and Mary gives birth. Poor Mary. And they take this babe, and they wrap it in swaddling cloths, and they lay it in the manger. And it says, at the same time that's happening, there is going on in the fields nearby kind of a, a, a tangential, a parallel story. There's shepherds out in the field. And here's Mary. She's in the stable in Bethlehem giving birth. They're putting the baby in the manger. Here's the shepherds out in the field, and it says an angel appears to the shepherds. By the way, I just, just want to clarify one thing. We had Gabriel appear to Mary and say, you're going to have a child. And, 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 and Gabriel would later confirm that to Joseph, who was going to divorce Mary because she was pregnant and he knew he wasn't involved. And so that made sense. So the angel appeared graciously and said, no, Joseph, don't do it. It's true, she has not been with you nor any other man. It's of me, the child is mine. You will name him Jesus, he will be God with you. So Joseph says, okay, I get it. And Gabriel appears to Zacharias and tells him, you're going to have a baby, John the Baptist, and now the angel to the shepherd. So we get the idea, is it just a time where that's normal? You get the feeling that you know, angels just appear, that's kind of how things rolled back then. But interestingly enough, it's not. Not any more than it is today. Matter of fact, it had been over 500 years since the last recorded appearance of an angel to a human being. So I just want to stop and make the point that if an angel appeared to you or I tonight, it would, just, it would be just as shocking to Mary and Joseph as it would be to us that angels were appearing to them and giving them these messages. Well, the angel appeared to the shepherds and the angel said, listen, um, there's a child. Well, the first thing the angel says is fear not. And the reason fear not is so important is because not only did the angel appear, but it said the glory of the Lord shone around them. That, um, that phraseology, glory of the, of the Lord, is used several times throughout Scripture. Every time it is used, it means the very presence of the Almighty God. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what that would feel like. I don't know what that would look like. But imagine the very presence of Almighty God, who's incorporeal, but him appearing before you. The glory of the Lord. So Moses had a great relationship with God. He talked with God. He went up on Sinai and back. He had a very close, intimate, God spoke to him through the bush, you remember. And Moses at one point in Exodus 33 said to God, uh, will you show me your glory? Like, I want to see you. And God said to Moses, you can't. If you were to see me in all of my glory, you would die. 
And so he says, build a tabernacle, and the people of Israel built the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, it says God inhabits the tabernacle. And to the people, it just looked like light inhabiting the tabernacle. And they knew the glory of the Lord was with them. Same thing happened in uh, Solomon's day. When Solomon completed the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the Holy of Holies. Uh, in 650 B.C., when the people of Israel were in such sin that they were in exile, it says this, the glory of the Lord left the temple. Matter of fact, the prophet Ezekiel saw it in Ezekiel 10, and he literally saw four seraphim escort the Lord right out of the Holy of Holies, out of the temple, and out of the land. God left. And the glory of the Lord is not touched down on this earth again until this moment. A group of shepherds, an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, you better believe they were afraid, and the text says they were sorely afraid. We would be afraid too. Yes, our God is Abba, Father. He is a loving God. He calls us sons and daughters in Christ. Yes, but if he appeared tonight, if an angel appeared to speak to us and the glory of the Lord somehow filled this place physically, tangibly, my first reaction would be just as the shepherds. I would be face down in worship and frankly in fear. Why is it that mankind fears when we come before God? Let me tell you why. God, in his very essence, the very presence of God, he is holy. Now, we toss that word around lightly often, but he is holy and true. He is perfectly righteous. And again, we know that we're not. I know that I'm not. But I don't normally bring my unrighteousness face to face with his righteousness. If I had that experience, it would put me face down. Not just worshiping, but in fear. Um, I don't know the last time you guys changed your air filters. Me saying that right now probably has some of you thinking, I need to change my air filters. But sometimes when I go up there to change, I'll go up and do a check, especially if I don't have any, I need to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy some air filters. I'll just go check, and I'll go up to the filter, and I'll pull it out. And inevitably, if I don't have any new filter with me, I'll pull it out, and I'll look at it and go, it looks okay. Like, it's a little grayish. I mean, I can definitely, it's not new. It's a little bit stained, but I feel like it's got a little life in it, and I'll just kind of ram it back in and check in another month or so. But when I have with me a new filter, and I pull out the old AC filter, and I have the new one, and I hold it up, and I go, huh, not too bad, whoa. And then I put them next to one another. And up against the clean, white, just stark white new filter, all of a sudden I look at this what I thought was justifiable dirty filter, and you know what I always say? God, it's disgusting. How were we living? I feel bad that my children were breathing this air. And the new filter goes in. And when we think about our own sinfulness in the day-to-day, -day, when we're not face-to-face -face with he who is holy and true, I think we find ourselves pretty justifiably okay. We probably have the thought, yeah, I'm a little gray, I'm a little dirty, but I'll look around at you guys, and y'all are all kind of dirty too, and and so I just have the thought, ah, we're doing okay. Let's just kind of keep plodding along, see if we can clean things up a little bit. But if I were to come face to face with him who is perfectly righteous, my unrighteousness would be so exposed that I would hit the ground, that I would be in fear and worship before the Lord. And so when the angel tells these shepherds, fear not, understand, you don't fear not because God is somehow less holy than you thought or that you are more righteous than you thought. It's not that. The fear not is because in the midst of his righteousness and your unrighteousness, there is, the angels say, good news. There's something that will bridge this chasm 
so that you are not merely laying before God in fear of the judgment you deserve. The fear not is God saying, I'm not coming right now to give you what you deserve, to judge you in your sin. There will be a day. There will be a day where the heavens will literally be torn asunder and Jesus Christ will return. And when he returns in that day, it will be to judge the quick and the dead. In that day, he will give man what they deserve. And it will be a day, as C.S. Lewis writes, in mere Christianity, a day of horror for anyone that does not know Jesus Christ because they will have to stand in an unjustifiable state of sin before he who is holy. But fear not, that day is not this day. This day, I bring you good news. The good news is of great joy. By the way, good news, uh, evangel would be the English rendering. It's where we get our word gospel. I bring you good news, gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people in light of anyone that is spiritually bankrupt before a God that is holy, there's good news. And the good news will bring great joy, not just for you shepherds, but for all the people. And here's the good news, that unto you is born this day in the town of David, a savior. A savior who is Christ the Lord. For you sinners who recognize your brokenness and wretchedness and dirtiness and nastiness in light of he who is holy, and you recognize the just separation between you and God because of your sin, if that's you, good news. Good news, God sent a savior to be born. And he says, uh, there's a response to this good news. He says, there's gonna be a sign for you. I like that he gives them a sign. The implication is, when these shepherds understand they're to fear not, and they come back to their feet, and they're told there's good news, there's a baby who is a savior, the implication is, they will run to find, wouldn't you, if you were told, and you're the only one that's told, the anointed one is here, you are going to sprint into town about six miles and find the statement. So here's what they're told. You need a sign so you know which baby's the baby. Here's your sign. He'll be the one wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. That's a great sign. It's a great sign because no one puts their baby in swaddling cloths in a manger. Shepherds, you don't have to worry about, well, which one is it? There's a baby here, and there's a baby here, and there's a... No, there's only one baby that's in a manger. That's him. And it took one angel to give them this, to, to, to give them this message of good news. But it requires an army of angels to respond to its meaning and implication. And a heavenly host shows up out of nowhere and they say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those in whom he is pleased. Let me just give you three observations. First observation is this. The gospel of great joy, that's what it is. The gospel of great joy is that God sent a savior for you and I. The word savior in the tense, it's passive. It's the idea of you don't do anything other than be saved. It's the idea of someone doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let me give you this illustration. Last summer, uh, we were swimming in our, in our pool at our home. My three oldest boys know how to swim. My younger boy does not. He was three, still is three, but was three at the time. He's got his little swimmy diapy on. He's got his floaties going. And, uh, and he knows that he cannot get in the pool without one of us back there and without his floaties on. And, and, uh, and, and we're pretty, obviously, we keep a keen eye on him. And everybody's kind of abreast of the situation. We've built a fence around the pool. We've taken a lot of precautionary measures. But on this one particular day, 
I was doing something on one side of the fence, and I looked over, and I just noticed he, he was slipping out of his floaty. And I said, David, 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 put your floaty on. And I noticed about that time that floaty dropped, and I kind of put down what I was doing, and I said, David, and he said, um, he scooted up and he towed the edge of that pool, and he was excited. He wasn't listening to me because he was excited because his brothers were playing in the pool. And they were doing something, playing basketball, something, and he was getting all excited, and he was giggling, and he was jumping, and he was, and I saw it coming. And I just saw his little heart beating in excitement, and I started making my move, and before I could even get to the pool, he just jumped right in. And that little guy, his head bobbed up one time, and it bobbed up, and I saw in him, his eyes were wide open, and he gasped for air, and his little hands were going as fast as he could, and he just went right under, staring at me eye to eye. And I'm going to give you something obvious here. David did not need me in that moment to rebuke him. He didn't need me to stand on the side and lecture him and tell him where he fell short of the uh, directives that his father, his loving father had given him. And he didn't need me to give him encouragement. Come on, buddy, harder, harder. Don't give up. Didn't need that either. And the last thing he needed was a swimming lesson in that moment. Kick, breathe, long stroke. David in that moment had one hope and one hope only, that there would be a rescuer who would literally come in the waters of judgment after him and would do for him what he could not do for himself, would literally pull him out and put his feet on solid ground. Understand the text said it's a savior that's born. It's not a helper. It's not someone to clarify the truth of God's word so that we can be more obedient to it. It's a recognition of in our inability to obey. There's one who will literally enter the waters of judgment with us, take our place in judgment, literally take the death that is due us in our sin so that we can have our feet placed on the solid ground on the shores of his grace. He traded with us. He was alive at the right hand of God the Father. He stood in God's grace. We were drowning in our sin. And he came, wrapped in flesh, so that he could live a righteous life, so that he could be a just sacrifice for us, that we might stand in confidence at the grace of God at his side in heaven for all of eternity. All other religions are swimming lessons for drowning men. Only the gospel says that you've been rescued. Second observation. And I talked about this last year. The good news of great joy, the gospel of great joy came to all people, but I want to say something. It says here, for unto you, for unto you is born this day in the town of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who will be for all the nations. Yes, he's for all the nations. But don't forget that he came for you. It wasn't just everyone else. It was me. Listen, he came to shepherds. In that culture, shepherds were so lowly that they couldn't even go to temple they were literally rebuffed. People didn't want to be around them. They smelled their language. They were scruffy, no good, lowest of the low. They weren't trusted to the extent that if a shepherd told you something, you assumed it was false unless there was someone else to corroborate the story. 
and the angel gave the message of the Savior to the lowly. The only way the point could have been made more that the gospel is for anyone who is dirty and wretched and knows it is if he had gone to lepers. The only one lower in their culture was lepers. And you give this baby time, he'll have an earthly ministry in about 30 years. You know where he's going? He's going to the lepers. And he's not going to stand and preach at them from afar. He's going to come forward and embrace them. He will touch them and identify. The news comes to the shepherds. Jesus identifies with the lepers. The idea is that Damon read it, Christ came to save sinners like you and like me. He's my savior. And the last observation. The text ends with this multitude of angels. And they're saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Listen, we often don't say this part. It sounds too unfair, too harsh, or I don't know what the term is, but we often don't say this part. On whom his favor rests. That's important. And the question you gotta be asking right there is, well, wait a minute. How do I know if I'm one on whom his favor rests? Story of a, of a man, uh, stories often told, the, the man had a uh, beloved wife and a beloved son, and they were the apple of his eye, and t- tragedy struck, and he lost his wife and his son in an accident. And this man grew into the latter years of his life uh, with a broken heart, disconsolate, until the point that he finally passed. And when he did, he had a will, and the will was to be read, and so his relatives came, he had an estate sale, the neighbors came, and everyone gathered, and they got this gathering. This man had lots of nice things. He was a wealthy man. He had all kind of nice possessions, and Um, the will stated that the estate sale was to begin with an auction. And the first possession they put forth, it was an old, kind of raggedy-looking painting portrait that had been done of his son. And they held that portrait, of course, no one there even knew who it was. They saw a raggedy old painting, and that's not what they came for. And the auctioneer said, will someone begin the bidding? And it was silent. It was silent until finally there was a lady that raised her hand, and she said, I'll bid on that that painting of his son, she was the housekeeper who had helped raise this child. She loved that boy. And she said, I don't have much, but I'll make a bid. He said, how much? She said her price. He said, going once, going twice, sold. And then the lawyer stood up and he came forward and he said, the auction is closed and the estate sale is over. For it says here in the will that whoever receives the son, receives it all. If you're wondering, am I one of those on whom his favor rests? Understand this, if you receive the peacemaker, you will have his peace. And it will be revealed that you are one on whom his favor rests. The answer to that question is 100% enshrouded in this. What will you do with the son born in Bethlehem who took your place in judgment, who is savior, who came to earth to live and to die? And he said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And those who live and believe in me, they shall never die. And John said it this way in John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become 
children of God. That's the gospel of great joy for you and I today. Amen? Will you bow your heads with me? Let me just ask this question. Is there anyone here that needs to be rescued? Anyone here that needs to be rescued? Understand the gospel doesn't say try harder. The gospel doesn't come in way of rebuke. It doesn't come to shame you in your sinfulness. The gospel is good news that he loved you in the midst of your sinfulness. And so he came in the flesh to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die. He did it in our place for our sin. I've asked Tony and the band to play a reflective song, and I just want to leave you in a moment of prayer. This reflective song is not one for us to sing, it's one for us to consider Christ. And if you are one who needs to be rescued, then I would offer this as a time to you to go to the Lord and do what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you too will be rescued. You'll be saved.